0: Welcome to the latest edition of Information's Crossroads podcast. Joining the program today is John Smolin of counsel with Ballard Spar, who has carved out a 13 year career in infrastructure law. Today, we delve into federal infrastructure matters as June has been a very busy month. Uh, we've seen the House introduce a new infrastructure bill and uh, rumors have circulated in the last few days of a new uh, $1 trillion infrastructure bill at the White House. Uh, but before we go into those matters, uh, john, I believe a new uh, GASB guidance was issued earlier this week, uh, and there could be some impacts on future p three projects. Why don't we start off with uh, a little layman's explanation of what these new um, guidance is and uh, then sort of talk about how it might impact uh, future uh, p three projects? Uh, thanks for joining the program today sure. John yeah
1: thanks for thanks for reaching out john i'm happy to happy to be on. Um, so nothing like starting off in the morning with a discussion about accounting and in fair disclosure, uh, I'm not an accountant, I'm a lawyer, but uh, I have to pay attention to sometimes what the accountants say when it comes to how it is that these structures for infrastructure deals and in particular public private partnership structure deals um, are going to, to play out. And so without um, presuming little, because uh, I actually had to continue to school myself on this. But Gatsby, the GASB is, is an is a accounting standards board, not under like unlike the engineer world that'll come out with standards about how to build a bridge or you know how deep concrete should be or how far apart wheels on a train are supposed to be. They come up with guidance about how public sector entities should be reporting the, their finances. Um, uh, And they come out with these statements from time to time that have numbers. And the latest statement came out this past Monday. Um, It's their 94th statement. And it pertains to how it is that government entities are supposed to think about availability payment projects. The punchline is that availability payments themselves, which we'll talk about in a minute if you'd like, John, uh, are now being the guidances that, Public entities are supposed to look at that as debt of the public entity. Uh, Before the GASB guidance, uh, that was not clear. And some municipalities and states in in particular would take an opinion uh, the other way that they were contractual uh, obligations potentially under arrangements that they would make in these P3 structures whereas other states would take a, the more conservative view, which is now the Gatsby view, that, that these expected payments over a duration of time are effectively debts of the municipality. So um, it's big news in as much as availability payment projects in the P3 structure was a, a way to tune risk allocation between the public sector and the private sector concessionaires about, in, in most cases, kind of big deal infrastructure projects that don't necessarily throw off money. So the easiest example would be to contrast a a toll bridge, for example, uh, with, say, a a courthouse. And in, uh, in the first case, there is an expectation that people who are using the toll bridge are going to be paying a toll, and that stream of tolls becomes a source of money that could be borrowed against or used or otherwise with respect to the bridge. In a classic project finance, the, the tolls would go into a pot. The pot would pay for the, the bridge maintenance or pay for the person that takes your tolls or whatnot. And enterprising uh, bridge builders would say, we project that this many cars will go over this toll bridge over a period of time, and the net present value of all of that money over time today is X, and they go to a bank and borrow X, and then they use that money to build the bridge. Contrast that with a, with a courthouse, for example. In a courthouse, you don't pay money to go into a courthouse. At least you don't pay money to go to the courthouse. You might pay for your lawyers and, and whatnot, but uh, that's for another day. <laughs> but the courthouse, um, it's the same principle. There's this idea that we need a courthouse now. The, the, the county doesn't have the money to build it now. But uh, they could either bond for it, ask for it, or they could turn to the private sector under an arrangement that says, uh, we'll enter into a deal where you will essentially come forward and design and build this thing. And furthermore, you're going to be operating it and maintaining it over a period of time, which should influence how it is that you design and build it, because if you're responsible for keeping it up, then so be it. But we're going to measure your um, payments, on the basis of the fact that this courthouse is up and running. The lights are on, the trash is taken out, the Internet works, this, you know, the floors are swept, there's no mold in the, in the walls, uh, and, and, and it can accommodate this many people over this period of time. And You can just imagine the list, how the list goes. Now, in an availability payment structure, the notion of you are going to be paid on the basis of the, the payment, the performance, I should say, of this courthouse is a little strange, but the idea is that you roll up all of these these performance metrics that the lights are on, that the trash is out, that the courthouse is, uh, you know, the parking lot is clean and well lit and whatnot. And if all of those are the case, then I'll give you X dollars. That means that it is fully available. X dollars traces to full availability. But if any one or a number of those things fall short, then the number goes down. So to go back to GASB, um, the, the earlier lack of guidance was that the public entities with respect to the courthouse could say, hey, look, the, the courthouse wasn't as available as it was supposed to be. In fact, it was so unavailable, we didn't pay the, the private sector operator any money that month, um, and that was our contractual deal. Or the next month, they got their act together, and we give them all of the money that we had agreed would be the maximum, amount, uh, even though they may have spent more to do it. And so those fluctuations in payments, sometimes that the financial types call them lumpy payments, were just that. They were payments. And a good CFO would spend time budgeting for that over a year and anticipating the worst, but at some point might find that they didn't have to make all those payments and then you just figured out what it looked like at the end of the year. Well, now GASB has called those payments, however big or however small, debt and that from an accounting perspective, the public entity needs to look at the payments that they're making as effectively uh, installment payments for the purchase of the courthouse.
0: So we um, have uh, noted in in some previous stories that there actually is gonna be an expected rise uh, in availability payment um, uh, projects as a result of COVID, uh, or expected rise. Uh, because, you know, at a certain point, you know, there's an expectation or speculation out in the market, uh, for the need for, you know, obviously further privatization of projects uh, and how the sector is going to pay for it. And what's going to be the appetite for demand risk projects when obviously the short and medium term projections for things like toll roads is not expected to be very good, um, and so, you know, the alternate, you know, is getting things done, uh, privatized, for instance, um, water utilities or, or modernizing that kind of thing. Um, and what we've seen transparently, you know, regardless of speculation has obviously been university energy projects uh, where we've heard places like, um, I think the University of Maryland, for instance, is looking at an availability payment type structure uh, to pay for their modernization. So. There's plenty, in, in other words, to make a long story short, there's plenty of projects out there uh, that, are, that could be affected by um, any kind of ruling on availability payments. So uh, having said that, John Smolin, why does it matter?
1: Um, for the reasons you stated from a market perspective, the notion of passing on the user fee risk to a private sector back to the toll roads is not working. Let's look at transit, for example. You pay $2 to ride, you know, uh, uh, a streetcar or a a transit line, and then Uncle Sam comes out and says, COVID, scary, stay six feet apart. Well, the projections on ridership for that transit thing uh, anticipated uh, a certain volume of people and a density of people on the train. In fact, the the whole point of transit is that it is able to move more people with less geography. Um, Density is... If not the name of the game, it is certainly a big part of the game. And so uh, you're right. So if somebody was was planning on an infrastructure solution where the expectation was that this this uh, fairbox type uh, infrastructure financing idea was going to work, that's come that's not going to work. But we still have the problem in the case of transit of moving people from point A to point B. So, yes, increased demand for availability payments. And then, then GASB comes out and says, oh, by the way, availability payments are, are debt. That means, from an accounting perspective, that if you have made promises, you, the public sector, has made promises in uh, other contracts that potentially were financed, say you borrowed some bond money to build a, you know, I don't know, playground, And then one of the covenants that you make in the transaction with the bonds is that your debt to your revenue ratios would not exceed a certain number. Well, now all of a sudden you have a bunch of things going in the debt, which means the calculation for your debt service, in this case coverage ratio would be the the accounting term, is is different than anticipated. Your knee-jerk reaction is going to be, well, I can't do availability payment deals until I get a handle on whether or not I'm already violating these covenants under my existing deals, which cover a number of things. I mean, municipalities, not unlike businesses, are doing a whole lot of things at once. So uh, the job of the financial folks is to keep track of those things so that they don't find themselves in default or, or, or even perhaps even worse, find themselves with worse credit ratings because they can't keep track of where they are relative to their other debt-type commitments. But the other more egregious issue is if there are statutory impositions on these municipalities, or these other, or, or the states themselves, for that matter, about how much debt they can carry. And I think um, the the point is that there's going to be a lull while people figure out which way is up. But more importantly, there's going to be a sense that they can't do much more because they have to balance their their availability payment type infrastructure approaches against all the other commitments that the municipality or the state is trying to undertake. So in in many ways, the cynical view once upon a time was these, quote-unquote, off-balance sheet-type contractual arrangements um, were really leaving in the discretion of the CFO just good housekeeping of their business, and they were reporting bona fide debts. Now, GASB comes from the outside and says, we don't really essentially trust you on this. Um, We're going to make you call them debts. And so those management strategies that may have carried some momentum to build, say, a pipeline of infrastructure solutions goes away. To so to circle all the way back to the beginning of the answer. In an environment where a demand-risk project is not attractive, that means people in the market who might deliver that project aren't going to come and answer your RFP. So you have an infrastructure problem. You have an environment, a market situation that doesn't lend itself, no pun intended, to a demand risk approach, and then now you have new guidance from the uh, the standards account, the accounting standards board that says, hey government people, now you need to look at all of your availability payment deals as debt, So it's going to put the brakes on things for a while until things shake out. That, or perhaps optimistically, Gatsby gets more feedback or some more reconsideration about the public policy implications of this view is, and then does a two-step and comes up with a way to say, well, these kinds of availability payments are debt, and these other kinds of availability payments aren't. And then people like me get to structure deals accordingly. So editorially, John Smolin is of the opinion that more discretion is generally good um, and that you could, uh, a municipality or a state can spend a lot of really good resource time trying to find a good sensible CFO to keep track of these things. I've been in conversations with CFOs in the past where, they have their own conservative views about
0: how to do that, irrespective of what GASB says about whether or not APs are or aren't debt. Or And there's that an or, John. Uh, there's an or there. What what if there's a federal infrastructure bill? Um, and this is where we transition to the second part of our discussion. Um, obviously, uh, the House introduced their um, bill on uh, June 3rd, um, the service transportation projects over a five-year period. It's been marked up, uh, and then there was uh, rumors circulating this week that um, there was going to be a $1 trillion uh, federal infrastructure plan coming from the White House. Um, So, you know, just getting to – not getting to the nitty-gritty of of when anything is going to get approved, because I think we've been down this road way too many times. I'd like to just get your view on – um whether anything that's circulated out of these uh, two bills, one at the House, one at the Senate, or some things that are being contemplated by another White House bill, if, if any of this is um, – anything is pragmatic to you in terms of just solving the, the funding gap that's out there uh, for U.S. infrastructure, just to take it to a broader level, and then we'll get into to more specifics after that.
1: Sure. Sure. Uh- the very direct question, is there anything pragmatic in this? And I think the answer is yes. I think just like anything else, um, there are people that are a whole lot closer to this uh, on a day-to-day basis with their offices, you know, right next to Capitol Hill and on first name bases with all of these members of Congress and senators and so forth. I'm not that guy, but I am a guy watching and I'm a guy who knows the people who are talking to those people. And I also feel like I know that everybody knows that the views of the practitioners and the participants really are going to be the tails that wag the dog with some of the stuff on the periphery being the things that everybody pays attention to in the press. So the direct question to you is, yes, I think there are some pragmatic aspects that actually cross um, the bills in terms of what they want to see encouraged as a public policy matter and what they think are good, meaningful returns on the investment of the government, however big or however small.
0: Excellent. Thank you. Um, So one of the things that was introduced was the uh, vehicles mile travel pilots um, that was contemplated. The House bill would double the funding for this program. Uh, Essentially, it it tracks vehicle miles traveled and, um, you know, levies a tax based on that number. Um, And people were looking at this as sort of a replacement for the gasoline tax. Um, you know, as, as it's a little bit harder, it, less, sorry, less of a revenue source than before due to, uh, the rise in, uh, fuel efficient hybrid vehicles, electric vehicles and all that kind of stuff. Uh, what, what's your uh, thoughts on this particular program?
1: My view on vehicle miles traveled is that I think that if there's a vector,
0: the vector is pointing
1: generally in the direction of this, where we're going, if only for the pragmatic problem of the demise ultimately of the, essentially the project financing strategy for the original interstate highway system. So the, the, the crash course is, as you kind of alluded to, once upon a time, there was a big number that was a gas tax attached to a small number, which was the, the gallon of, the price of a gallon of gas in cars that got 10 miles a gallon. And we've advanced now to the point where that number, the federal number is effectively the same since I think it's 93, the price of gas has gone up. Uh, and accordingly the the ability of cars to uh, to be gas efficient uh, for federal and just for market reasons has gone up drastically the numbers go down there's no money that was the strategy there has to be a new strategy and the one that's the most viable is the, is the vehicle miles traveled there's uh, I, you'll hear it in other contexts called the mileage based user fees and I think this is an example of what we're going to see when we look at these bills where in many ways different words have considerable overlap and one party frankly says one thing and another party says another. But the vehicle miles traveled is going to be uh, a really good tool to get there and I think where the battle is going to be is the minute at which the imposition of the number for your vehicle miles traveled essentially tax becomes a discouragement on people traveling. Uh, Somebody somewhere is modeling yeah. this, and when they get to the number that says, at this point, people will stop driving, at this point, people won't stop driving, somewhere in between those is where the where the conversation is going to go. I think you can predict that the folks that are more on the business-friendly side of our legislative branch are going to want to have a safe cushion where uh, that uh, replacement will be a seamless replacement between essentially a gas tax and a BMT. And people will continue to plug along on the theory that the economy will expand. Then the people on the other side that are gonna be more public policy from uh, environmental and we need to encourage the market to get away from gas are gonna want that number to be higher to force the market to transition to the more efficient vehicles. Now, the the corollary challenge, uh, which is a good challenge for me as an infrastructure lawyer, John, to be candid, is if the, the, the latter group wins and VMT starts really kind of taking off, we're just kind of shifting where the infrastructure money is going to go. I don't think that it's going to be replenishing our infrastructure uh, funds. It's going to be redirecting our infrastructure funds and adding a new infrastructure class that we're going to need to deal with in earnest, which is going to be a charging infrastructure. There was an article that I had uh, picked up in a news feed, um, I want to say yesterday or today, about how a uh, West Coast freight EV um, charging infrastructure would require a pretty full recharge every 50 miles. And so is that infrastructure for the charging infrastructure, do we have a energy infrastructure to match that? Are we prepared to have 50-mile increment charging stations and what is giving way and what are we doing with the infrastructure we already have there. So we have BMT that's going to create more money, but that more money is going to have to go to more or different or additional, if you will, infrastructure types. And that's where I think all of the magic of our public policy friends on Capitol Hill are going to have to sort that out.
0: Interesting. Um, so just another element I wanted to get to was um, also introduced in the House bill was the Project of National Regional Significance Program, which allows uh, all of a sudden passenger and commercial rail uh, eligible for grants. I um, wanted to get your thoughts on how pragmatic that proposal was at this point.
1: Well, uh I appreciate the question. I I think it's an interesting timing to raise and keep the profile of rail up. I think in the abstract that a um, public policy view that is advocated on the Democrat side, the, the Representative DeFazio policy statements is we need to have a multimodal view on these things, and there's an exclusion of passenger and commercial rail from these, but they serve a purpose to move people and freight around the country, which the circulation creates an economy. That's great, except we have COVID and we have other governmental um, impositions that are causing the practical uh, conceptions of these, I think, to be disfavored. And I think for very very reasonable reasons. That being said, uh, it could be inferred that we don't want COVID to make us short-sighted. Maybe there are ways to reconfigure and rethink how we encourage multimodal travel such that we can keep um, the lessons that we'll have learned from all of this, God help us when we get through it, and, and diversify our um, transportation modes on a theory that none of them will be so detrimentally impacted as has been the case now, rather than an either or, maybe it's an all of the above, which I think is fairly consistent with the size of their um, government spending portion of the bill itself. Now, speaking as an infrastructure lawyer, I think it's just a great idea. I think that making grants in favor of one mode over another mode, uh, despite it being a statement of public policy, really is not the right approach to infrastructure. The market, in many ways, I think should dictate the infrastructure. So why, be, why not be a little more agnostic about the mode and let the, the, the competition that greets any particular mode or suggestion really drive the, the will of the people in terms of how it is that they want to move around and from where?
0: Interesting. Yeah, this comes amidst some a couple of, you know, high, aggressive uh, HSR proposals or high speed rail proposals that were out there, uh, you know, 2018, 2019, uh, the biggest one being the Dallas to Houston uh, or Texas Central. I know that's before 2019, 2018, as I think about it. But um, and then the the California HSR uh, concept, which was reduced um, over time to to where it's a more manageable uh, or a smaller rail uh, proposal, which is just some, of some things we're going to be, you know, keeping a watch on, um, especially as uh, uh, the economy recovers or when it recovers. Um, anyway, um, John, were there any other concepts you wanted to raise um, within these bills, or any 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 anything that caught your eye? Uh, I know we discussed resiliency being a, an interesting element that was out there, but thought I'd let you just bring that up.
1: Well, I appreciate that, John. There actually there were two. That was one of them. I, mm-hmm. uh, I, I, had, I had said earlier that one of the one of the things that kind of gets obscured between the partisan uh, uh, rollout of these and sort of the interaction, in particular on the House side, between you know, there's the Invest in America Act bill, and then Representative Graves come out with his uh, I can't remember what it was called Start I think something like that. Um, I have it written down. But the, the point is, they're talking, uh, the Starter Act, they talk about a lot of the same things, but they have to have a kind of a marketing feature about it. And I had suggested earlier that sometimes you, there's, you know, VMT versus mileage-based user fee. There's kind of the same view here. Uh, those who are advocating for resiliency and those who are, who are advocating for life cycle maintenance and rehabilitation. Well, in many ways, those are two sides of the same coin. And I think that that creates an opportunity for common ground. Now, I'm, I've never been a senator or a congressperson. Uh, uh, who knows whether or not I would ever have been a good one. But my guess is that when they close the doors, that once they get past the vocabulary, they find that they're talking largely about the same things, and that's how the gristmill produces the bill. And in the case of a focus on resiliency, that is an anticipatory and preparatory way to reduce the need in the out years, in the, uh, when, when you're not entirely sure what sort of funding you're going to have, that there's going to need to be a sudden influx of a lot of money to repair something. And, and furthermore, it's also another, the connotation is the protection of the asset that you're investing in the here and now. So I, I don't think either party is going to have objections with that. It just appears that the Republican side, and particularly in President Trump's, uh, I, I guess, proposal, is that this notion of devoting towards fixing our existing infrastructure is in many ways we should have been resilient before, and the and that there's nothing wrong with that. So do you put the dollar one on fixing what you have or dollar one on you know putting a wall around what you have and then put, deciding to fix it later? Those are details. Those aren't philosophical issues. The second thing that I, I that struck me about this is I think it's fundamentally and this should be no surprise, it's a fundamentally about where the money comes from and when uh, the, the president's view uh, as far as I can tell is that an infrastructure stimulus should largely be generated from the investment by the private sector. And that is great. I'm in public private partnerships a lot with my practice. and so. The, the, the principle there is, is in a relationship between the public and the private sector and an investment opportunity for the private sector, but with a expectation of a return. And the return on the investment, to our earlier point, can either come some or all from the demand, um, the, the the actual utilization of the asset, but more often than not, based upon the size and the complexity of these things, it's going to be coming from from the government. So, so an investment... Uh, under President Trump's proposal is private sector investment, and that's great for early money, but there's still the prospect and the need, and frankly, the, it's appropriate for a longer-term return on the investment in exchange for the delivery of that. That's government money. Now, on the flip side, you have the, the, the Representative DeFazio-led uh, in Invest in America Act uh, idea, which is we need to put government money in it now. And so it doesn't emphasize the private sector investment per se, but it is going to be involving private sector contractors who are delivering it. So it's a little bit of a contrast between pay me now or pay me later, or how it is that we meet out payments over time. I will freely admit I have some bias that if the complexity of the project, comma, and the size of the project, comma, and frankly, the urgency of the project, require people to be thoughtful about getting it done now, then a private sector investment type approach is probably the smart move. And that investment is uh, less money now, more money later, all things being equal. If there's more work a day, transform our infrastructure approach, then the government has a bit more of a luxury of being able to just pay for it as it goes. So that that seems to me to be – Loss in all of this is is it private money or is it public money it's all public money it's just how much public money and when is it public money which leads to the age-old forever always been the problem always the issue what are the pay-fors under these situations i'm thinking of the last time uh, we were talking about democrats and republicans sitting in the same room we were talking about you know the was it 1.5 trillion dollar 2008 or 2018 meeting? uh yeah, and they all went in the White House and they came out and said, we came up with a number, but we couldn't figure out how to pay for it. So okay. it's, the same, it's the same thing here. It doesn't really matter what the number is. It should matter what it is we're trying to embrace, and it really should be thought about how much money and when. And ideally, again, showing my bias, the ability for a private sector investor or a private sector contractor to count on the flow of that money over time. And we we get to do that, and I think you're going to get really competitive deals. Probably the borrowing costs will go down because the risk premiums will go down, and we'll scoop out of this issue.
0: Well, well said, John. And uh, I think that's going to be about all the time we have for today's program. So, uh, John Smolin, we thank you uh, for taking the time to appear on today's program, and uh, thanks for tuning in. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. Uh Brooke out.